Let me pray before I begin. Father God, uh, thank you for this morning. Thank you for each one of us. Not here by uh, accident, Lord Father, but you called each one of us to be here this morning uh, uh, to learn something about you, Lord. So, Lord, we pray that you would uh, take away all the distractions. You would calm our hearts and minds. You prepare a sowing ground, uh, ground, Lord Father, in our hearts that, Lord, uh, we would uh, reap harvest. Uh, Lord, so come and speak to us, Lord, I'm your servant here, standing in faith that, Lord, you would uh, speak through me, Lord. If they listen to me, they will not be changed, they would not be touched. But if you speak, Lord Father, their lives will be transformed. They would know your saving grace. And so, Lord, we invite you this morning to come and minister to each one of us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So those of you who are visiting us, uh, we are in a series called uh, Genesis and uh, uh, particularly we are looking at a theme, uh, uh, God's plan for our lives. So we started the study three weeks back and this is our fourth uh, uh, week in this uh, series. So this week uh, we are going to look at uh, chapter 3 uh, which, uh, which was already read to you. Okay, before I begin, let me ask, uh, how many of you love love stories? Nobody? <laughs> I thought everybody likes love stories. Okay, uh, then I prepared the message for the wrong crowd. <laughs> Pardon me. Okay. So I think uh, love excites everyone, right? I mean, across the genders, across the ages, across the races, across the cultures, languages. You name the people group, love excites each one of us. There's something about love. Okay. So we all know uh, the famous love, st- love stories like uh, Romeo and Juliet. Though it was written many centuries back, still uh, we call it, we see someone is loving, is a Romeo, right? Even in our culture, we see uh, like uh, Devdas, for example, uh, or uh, uh, the very symbol of love, which is there in Agra, Sajahan and Muntaj Mahal. So there are many stories uh, for us to see the magnificence of love in our culture. So perhaps we, we all remember Titanic, right? It's in a popular culture, it celebrates love like that. And we all cheering and we all crying when Jack dies in that. So I, I can't understand this why. Most of the love stories end up in tragedy. <laughs> Maybe you are smarter people, that's why you're not liking this story. Because love always uh, ends in some tragedy, separation. So, if you look at all the stories, uh, for example, uh, there are many villains in the love story, right? There are many villains in the love story. He comes, either the, the girl's fiancé, or the families, or even uh, maybe death comes and separates the lovers. So, the love stories end up uh, being tragic, tragic in most of the cases. But uh, if you want ever, ever want to write a love story, you need to remember there are three main characters. They ought to be there in that love story. One is the hero or the lover. And the second character is his love interest or the heroine need to be there in that. But if you just put them, that story is not exciting. Nobody would read that story. Okay. So there need to be a villain in that love story. Okay. So there, there are three important ingredients for any love story. Okay. So even now, if you look at our love stories, there are three ingredients in our, in our love stories, right? I, me, myself. That's why our love stories never make into top charts. Okay. So, nevertheless, we need to have three these three characters in our love story. But again, we know many of the literatures where the love story, love is celebrated through stories. But what is the greatest love story ever told? What is that greatest 
love story. The Bayuki claims this book is the greatest love story ever told to the humanity. It's not only a love story, but it's in fact a love letter written by God to its love interest, the humanity, his creation. Okay, so let's, uh, we started the Genesis 1 uh, with the main character of this love story. In the beginning God, in the beginning God. So the love story of the Bible starts with Yahweh, God. So you need to understand something about this uh, love, or uh, the hero of the story. He is self-sufficient, he is eternally existed. He is always, uh, he is complete in himself. He does not need anyone to compliment him or complete him. He is self-sufficient, he is eternal, he is always, he is. But this loving God, this hero, decides to bring his heroine into existence. So that brings us to our second uh, character in the love story, the humanity. We read uh, in the first chapter that God, after creating everything, the pinnacle of his creation is humanity, man and woman. In his image, he created man and woman. Equal, having the essence of God, the reflection of God in them. Christy sometime back reminded me that God created a draft, a beta version, before creating masterpiece. So, woman came after man. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I don't agree. I mean, I mean uh, like, argue with that. Nevertheless, that's Lord's pinnacle of his creation, pinnacle of his creation, man and woman in his own image. And last week, uh, uh, we heard how man, God ordained marriage to this man and woman, to this man and woman. And we saw that even the first song, in fact, uh, uh, in the history of mankind, Adam sings, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. He's, he, was, he was very happy to have Eve behind him. In fact, a, a, a reflection of his love next to him. So everything goes really well till chapter 2. And then we come to chapter 3. Suddenly, we sense something is not right. Something is changing. As we read into the few, few verses of chapter 2, chapter 3, we immediately realize the love interest of God betrays him. He turns its back on his creator, on its creator. The creation chooses someone else, not God. So that's what we are going to start. Uh, so the first point uh, this morning, we are going to see the attractiveness of sin, falling for a false lover. Attractiveness of sin, falling for a false lover. In chapter 3, verse 1, it starts, Now serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God made. He said to the man, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? As soon as we turn to chapter 3, we are introduced to a character which was not... Uh, told us in the first two chapters we are introduced to a character, the serpent this is not only serpent, this is a speaking serpent who is this? very soon we will come to know this is the villain in the story but who is this serpent? is it just a snake speaking? but who is this serpent? for that the revelation 12.9 gives an answer who is this serpent? So 12.9, the great dragon was hurled on the ancient serpent called the devil or satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled down to the earth and his angels with him. So the revelation tells us, this is the ancient serpent who was there in the garden. It is called the devil. It's called the devil. It's a deceiver. And uh, so, did God create this evil thing? Did God created him to commit evil like this? So the Bible in a way gives an answer for all of us to see. If you turn to Ezekiel 18, 28, 12 to 16, you don't have to turn, I'll, I'll explain the narrative. So basically it says from 12 onwards, you were 
signet of perfection, full of wisdom. Is basically this letter is I mean this scripture is written to the tire. But the scriptures that are saying say here, you were in the garden, Eden, the garden of God. So in a way, scriptures pointing to the power behind the king of Tyre, addressing to Satan. You were in the garden. Okay. And then it describes how majestic this created being is. The most beautiful, most perhaps uh, like decorated angelic being, guardian cherub, the Bible calls. He was with the, with the Lord, worshipping him. In fact, he was perhaps a choir leader in the heavenly realms. This cherub, and then verse 15, listen to it. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. In a way, Bible makes it very clear. He was not created with evil in him. He was blameless, that's what scripture says. And then it says, in the abundance of in the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. So something happened in heavenly realms that caused God to banish this created being from the heavenly courts. That's what he says. He hurled down to the depths of hell. And then what did he actually do that caused God to pronounce such a punishment on him? Isaiah gives an answer for that. When you turn to Isaiah 14, Basically, follow onwards. These are famous five wills of Satan. What he did in the heavenly courts is recorded, so to say, for us. So, in a, in a way, it tells us, You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heaven. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mountain, mountain of assembly. In the far reaches of north, I will ascend above the heights of clouds. I will make myself like most high. This created being declared himself. I wanted himself to be exalted high above the highest courts, above God, and wanted to be God. So until this point, there was no blemish in him. At this point, God found sin in him and he vanished. This ancient serpent shows up in the garden. And then he comes and pauses, pauses this question. Did God actually say you shall not eat any tree in the garden? Very simple question, right? Did actually God say this? Are you sure? How ridiculous is that? Your food is only fruit and the vegetables in the garden. God prohibited to eat, not to eat. What did God actually say? Do you read the terms and conditions? So he created a doubt in Eve's mind. What did God actually say? Please tell me. Then Eve responds. She entertains her. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat. From the tree of the tree, uh, tree eat of the tree of the tree, fruit of the tree, sorry, that is the, in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Here Eve says something which is contrary to what was actually told to them. God actually gave a command to Adam in chapter 2, verse 12, 12, uh, 17 onwards, he says, But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it, for the day you eat it you shall surely die. That's what that's the commandment God gave him. In the garden, the chapter 2. So God made Adam a custodian over Eve. He's the head of his house. He's supposed to pass this commandment to Eve. Probably there is not proper communication happened from Adam to Eve. God did not say, you shall not touch it. In fact, if you read the scripture carefully, she did not even know the name of the tree. So that's enough for serpent to deceive Eve. Because she did not actually know what God said. 
So serpent uses that as a bait. Then he, he responds in verse 4 saying, You will not surely die, for God knows when you eat of the tree of tree, eat of your eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what did serpent actually did in the garden? It created doubt about God's goodness, isn't it? Very craftily it did that. You know what? God is withholding something good from you. Because of that, he is putting a boundary around you. So he created doubt about God's goodness. Even today we battle with that, don't we? We want to have something when we come to scriptures, do not do it. So God, in a way, we question God's goodness. God, are you sure? We start doubting God's goodness. Not only that, he, he the devil also did something else. He created a doubt about the badness of sin. Come on, Eve, this is just a fruit hanging there. What will happen? Nothing is going to happen. You will surely not die. He twisted God's word. He made God a liar. God is lying. He is prohibiting you to have something good. You, nothing will happen. You go and have it. You will not die. What a deception. So he created that. He made God a liar. Perhaps that, till that point there was no death. It's a concept for them. It's a foreign thing for them. Have you seen death? No. Then how could you die? No, you will not die. Go on, have it. So it created doubt about God's goodness. It created doubt about badness of sin. So this is a deception about Satan, brethren. He made portraits God as a bad one. And everything bad for us, he portrays as a good one. All this happens because we know, we not know what did God say. You see, do we really know what God said in the word of God, in the Bible? I don't think many of us spend enough time knowing what God said in the Bible. We might spend lots of time reading blogs, listening to podcasts and books and whatnot, but how much time are we spending to know what actually God said in the Bible? If you do not know, that's enough for the devil to come and tempt us, to deceive us, to lead us away from God. That's what exactly he did here. Then the tragedy of humanity is recorded in 6. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that was it a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took up its fruit and ate and she also gave some of her gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. That's it. God said you shall not and they actually went and did what he said they should not. They took the fruit and they ate it. But uh, I asked some of my cousins uh, what, they, what do they think about this passage? So they, they, honestly, I want them to share question this and raise questions on that. Then some of the questions they said, why did he put the tree in the garden in the first place? It's his mistake. If the tree wouldn't have been there, they wouldn't have sinned. So it's God's problem. He is the one to be blamed. And a few years back, I mean, in fact, uh, 10 years back, Christian and I decided to have children. So any parent, any parents, they, they as, a, as a couple, they decide, they will to bring their offspring. If they do not want to bring their offspring, children do not cease to exist. So as parents, we in our heads decided to bring forth children. When we bring our children, because we, we in so to say, created them, we have every legitimate right on their obedience. 
At the same time, we do not demand our children's obedience. We tell them, child, if you obey, this is what is going to happen. If you do not obey, this is what is going to happen. We are giving you that option to choose to obey or not obey. That's what we all raise, right? We all like to have that prerogative, that right as parents, but we deprive God to have that right. In the absence of freedom to choose, love does not exist. Love and freedom must go in hand in hand. If there is no freedom, there is no love. If there is no love, there is no freedom. God created you and me with that free will to choose to obey or not obey. Otherwise, you would have created machines. You just program them. They will obey whatever you want, your command. That's my Lord. No, God did not do that. God created in His image a being which can choose good or evil. So he put that tree there in the right in the middle of the garden as a reminder that he is the creator. They are created beings. They are not gods. They are not gods. When, you, when they look at that tree, that should be their reminder for them. They are not God. Only God. Their God, Yahweh, is their God. It also reminded them that they are under the authority of God. Because of God, they came to be. It's his will. Because of his will, they were created. So they are under the sovereign will of God. That's a reminder, the tree in the garden. Not only that, God also told them very clearly, if you choose to disobey me, these are the consequences. You will surely die. In a way, he put up a standard. So was God there in the garden all the time? No, right? He would come in the cool of the evening and have good time with this couple. But rest of the time, there, that tree reminded the presence of God. You are under his sovereign authority. You are his creation. You are not God. So the tree must be very much there in the garden as it is a reminder that they have a choice. They can choose. Let me quickly define now. The Bible, when humanity took that fruit and ate it, the Bible calls it sin. Sin, many of us understand as a very religious word. But it's not so. Sin is something. Anything God says you should not do, if we do it, that's why we call it sin. Here, what was the sin? You should not eat. They ate. Did they murder? Did they commit adultery? Did they commit any crime? Did they escape with lots of money or power money and sitting in London? No, right? <laughs> they just disobeyed. They just disobeyed. That Bible called sin. And for that, God says you will surely die. That's God's law right there. When we choose to turn away from our lover, God, there is a consequence that you and I must pay. So the Bible very clearly teaches. Interestingly enough, humanity turned away from the creator who brought life into being. They chose to follow the one who demands our life, who demands our blood. He fell for a false lover. Okay. Humanity followed the false lover. Let's move on to our uh, second section. Trap of sin, broken love. Trap of sin, broken love. As soon as it happened, four things, at least I summarized it. There are many things you can come up with, but at least I summarized four things that happened in this passage. One, first, uh, let me quote them first and then I'll go uh, one by one. Broken relationship with God, broken relationship, pain and suffering entered the world, and then death started raining. Death started raining. Let me start. Broken relationship with 
with God. Seven onwards, seven and eight, basically. The scriptures tell us that their eyes were open. They realized that they are naked. They realized they are naked. And they tried to cover their shame with fig leaves. Not only that, they started hiding themselves from the presence of God. So what happened here? The relationship with which they enjoyed to till that point was broken. Now they are seeing God as someone, as their enemy. Someone powerful. They are not seeing God as their lover. Now neither do they are they seeing him as their father. As or their creator. He is coming with something. We need to fear him now. So that relationship they enjoyed with God was broken because of their disobedience. It is an and also interestingly, very interesting thing, right? They start trying to fix their own problem by putting fig leaves on themselves. Their dependence on God vanished the moment they disobeyed. They now think they can fix their own problems. Maybe the scriptures tell God would come in the pool of the day and uh, they would celebrate and they would declare uh, if this wonderful couple would tell God I named this so and so and there was a, a, a perhaps worship and adoration towards their creator. But now in fear they are hiding. So John 1 John 14 4 18 onwards it says like this There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. They were perfect. And now they were not. So is that their love affair is not perfect anymore. It's a broken love. They think they know God. They don't know Him anymore. Lack of conformity to God. What, what God says has consequences. Many people today come to God out of fear. The moment the fear, if fear is your motivation to go to some holy place, that itself is a red flag. It's not worship. It's not worship. Because where the perfect love is there, there is no fear. You and I as Christians today, come here Sunday morning, not out of obligation, not out of fear that a holy God is coming after us, but we come this morning here to celebrate His love, His perfect love towards broken people, broken love, lovers like you and me. So then, the vertical relationship between God and them is broken. Even now, I want you to read uh, Romans, when you go back home, read Romans 1, uh, 18 onwards. It's a beautiful description. I mean, in a way, Paul gives an exposition of what happened in Romans uh, Genesis 3 for us to see the depravity of sin, the depravity of human heart, how much we are in a way, mad because of sin. 18 onwards, he says, if you see in the nature all around us, we can clearly see God's divine attributes and a divine power in everything that has been created that we know for sure there is a God and he created. And the scriptures tell us we suppress this truth because of sin. We say, God, you know, there these things happen by chance. There's a big bang and these things are there. But if we do not suppress the truth, we clearly see there is a creator who ordained this. Not only that, Paul describes us, uh, for us to see that in this suppression of truth, we not only stopped giving thanks and praise and glory to God, but now we started glorifying ourselves. Glorifying created things, human beings, reptiles, animals, you name it. We started glorifying and worshipping everything that has been created, not the creator. That is how we felt 
Dharma, Dharma, Dharma is that we today we want to worship, but we do not want to worship the true God, but we worship everything else, including our desires, our jobs, our children, you name it, we worship them. Not God. And then the broken relationship with the relationship with each other is broken. Broken relationship with each other. We see that as soon as God asked, Did you eat that fruit, Adam, which I asked not to eat? What did Adam say there? This woman whom you brought? What happened to that song? Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones. <laughs> now this woman? Lord, again, look at the way Adam is saying, I am not to be blamed. You need to, you are the one to be blamed. You brought her here. You created this evil thing and put next to me, made me sin. Did God create it? He an evil being, he chose. That made the hell evil. So to say, Lord, it's you. Not only they we see that, right? The blame game never ended since that point. Look at the marriages all around us. You show me a perfect marriage. The outside there was everybody, you never come to our bedroom and see, right? How loving we are. All marriages are marred because of sin. Because of sin, the relationship is broken. Not only that, when we turn to the next very chapter, chapter 4, we see Adam's uh, sons, uh, Adam and Eve's sons, uh, Cain and Abel. Cain kills his own brother, Abel. In the very next chapter, and by the time you reach to the chapter 6 of Genesis, you see the depravity of human sin, everything was ruined. You named a sin that was it started existing. Because of this, just one act of disobedience. And again, why God prohibited them to have knowledge of good and evil? Why it is so bad for humanity to have that knowledge of good and evil? I think I don't know the answer for sure. But when I look at the world and when I look at and read all the newspapers and all the things that are happening around us, humanity can have the knowledge of good and evil. But they end up choosing always evil, not good. Only God is powerful enough, always knowing good and evil, chooses what is good. It's like, it reminded me of that uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy where Frodo, right? Where he holds that ring. Can you see the battle he goes through? That ring, that deception, that temptation he goes through? That's what happens when we know good and evil. We cannot. It controls us. So only God can handle that. So he profited, which is not good for us yet, perhaps. And then we see third thing, pain and suffering entered the world. Pain and suffering. Verse 16, God, uh, and then basically if you read the narrative 14 onwards, God starts uh, cursing one by one, starts with serpent. And then he comes to the woman, in, woman, he says in verse 16, I will surely multiply the pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. You pronounce judgment. It's very true, right? Animals give more offspring, birth to more offspring. Can, can a woman give a birth to those many children? There is some things happened in the garden. Only women, human beings cry and cry. And I, I, I was not there when Christy gave birth to two of my daughters. I chose not to be there. Because I cannot see. Only human beings cry giving birth to the children. That's a curse from God. 
not only that he he put as you always want to control your husband but you know what he will control over you he will rule over you that is the reality pain and suffering even that god curses adam in so far the garden is bringing these fruit automatically for you you just have to go and cultivate and just take the fruit now on what you know what with sweat and toil with suffering and pain you will earn your bread the world the world the creation itself will turn against against you if you not bring forth fruit for you because of our disobedience god even curse the creation today it, it it is instead of we subduing it the creation in fact is subduing us isn't it even our work became very painful for us next week we are going to talk about work in detail so if you are working or if you are looking forward to work don't miss this sunday okay please do come next sunday and lastly rain of death rain of death here the lord says to adam verse 19 by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken you are the dust and to dust you shall return surely you will die god said and here is the pronouncement of that that you will return to the place where you came from that dust so there is a physical death happened since that time humanity started dying isn't it death entered through one act of disobedience because of sin of humanity and also when we read the narrative verse 20 onwards god basically banishes them from the garden and he puts a cherub to guard the garden that man will not enter and eat from the tree of life because god did not want humanity to eat and live forever in their fallen state so he banishes them so we started dying spiritually that door which was stuck since then humanity is trying to find that door and open but we might come up with ways and means and we might come up with methods we might consult someone we might go and do good deeds but never can find that door unless god opens it and shows the way for us so god in a way we are spiritually dead to the truths of god unless he intervenes and does some miracle in our hearts we cannot respond to the spiritual truths but again if you are a thinker in fact someone said you you haven't seriously started thinking unless you thought profoundly on genesis chapter 3 that's so true so how come adam's disobedience is making each one of us die today is that fair is that fair if you ask me it's not fair if i if i would have been in the garden i wouldn't have eaten that food so it's not fair for god to punish me because of what adam did second millions of hundreds i think not millions is not a maybe or exaggerated thousands of babies in the world today are crying because they are born with aids was that their mistake certain things i think we need to grapple with the scriptures and we need to understand what god actually said and we read uh, romans uh, 5:8 it even makes us hard but at the same time uh, paul contrasts between what happened in the garden and what happened with christ through one man death came into existence through one man sin came into existence through one man every all the humanity started dying one man adam but at the same time he contrasts that 
with the obedience of Christ through one man. We'll come to that. We'll land on that. But think about that. Through one man, we are one man's disobedience experience evil you see around in the world today. One man's disobedience. So did God, being a good lover, leave humanity like that? If you would have shut the door and shut the heavenly courts and then, okay, I disown you people, I judge you. Does that make God a good lover? Can God say, you and I say that I, I, I have love. I know love. But God says, I am. I, God is love. That's what Bible says. If God is love, can, can he just banish his creation like this? And say, I have nothing to do with this creation. That's where the biblical narrative becomes even more profound. God's love story is nothing like any other love story. God acts. Acts to redeem his own creation. He steps into the humanity, in the, in the narrative, in the history of humanity, he steps in. That very promise he gives while cursing the devil in the garden. Let me read verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and he shall bruise his heel. So what basically God here is saying? You know what? You betrayed my lover. You brought this enmity between me and my lover. But you know what? The solution to this problem is a person, a offspring. And this offspring will come from the woman and he will destroy you. He will try to strike his heel, but nevertheless, he is going to crush your head, this serpent. So God curses the power behind the serpent in the garden. And he gives at the same time a promise to humanity. You know what? I am not going to leave you, but I will bring an offspring into this world. Through a woman. And then you just, if you start reading the Bible from verse 4, chapter 4 onwards, it's basically God's love story revealing page after page how he is going to win back his love. And he tells this narrative, this story, not with one person, then you could have said that, okay, there's a fiction of someone, Moses was watching sheep and he ate some beans and he was high and he had written this. No. God chooses many, many authors, over 40 different authors, from a time period of over 1400 years, he tells this narrative, this is how I am going to win back my love. So if you start thinking profoundly, when we look at the details that are given in the Bible, any thinker, any reasonable man should pause and ask, how could it be? Because all things God says come to pass, one by one, he, he brings a man out, out of nothing, makes a nation, he creates a nation and he gives a loss and then eventually promises, David, that your son will sit on my throne forever. And my saviour will come from the time of, from the city of David. All the details one by one God gives and fulfills each and every promise he made to humanity. And finally Jesus shows up in human history. 2000 years back. Exactly told in the garden to the serpent, offspring of woman. What does scripture tell us? Whenever you use Jesus, son of Virgin Mary. Why is so important? Jesus, son of Virgin Mary. I am born in India. I don't have a choice but to be Indian. If I show up in the United States immigration and say I am an American, they'll throw me out. Next flight, they'll send me back. That's the law of the nation. 
can I claim to be someone else? I am Indian. So the Bible tells the moment Adam sinned, the whole of humanity, so to say, is there is Adam in the garden taking that fruit and eating. So because of his disobedience, everybody fell from the glory of God. There is none righteous, everybody sinned. The blanket statement Bible says, there is not even one righteous, all have fallen. If Jesus would have born through human parents, would have born with that defect, sin defect. God bypasses that and brings our Savior through a virgin just as promised in the garden, blameless, sinless at his birth. Right? And we read the gospel narratives. We read the details about Jesus' life. As soon as he started his ministry, he was led into the wilderness to be tested, to be tempted. Again, you need to see Matthew 4 and Genesis 3 side by side. Here is the first Adam, here is the last Adam. Both, how what choices they made. Both have a choice, freedom to choose to obey or disobey. The same serpent showed up at both the places and the same temptation was thrown at Jesus. What did Jesus do? Did he choose to disobey? He chose obedience. Even when the scripture was twisted and thrown at Jesus, Jesus quoted scripture again. God said, we shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, I will not disobey, I will rely, I will depend on my God, my Father in heaven. He chose obedience. Even at the end of his life, through the life you and I need to live, the moral, righteous, holy life, godly life, he lived for you and me. Even when he was in the garden, when he was battling, whether to take the cup, the, the punishment of humanity upon his shoulders when he was battling, what did he do? He gets up and he says, not my will, Lord, your will be done. I will embrace the cross because that's the will you have for me. I will not disobey. Jesus goes to the cross and dies on the cross. See, in the scripture, the serpent must be very happy, right? I put son of God on the cross. I killed him. I struck his heel. What happened after three days? He sang this morning, victory. Jesus conquered death and sin. Came back to life. That is the proof that he never sinned in his life. And then God basically tells us this. Because of one first Adam, who his disobedience, the curse has fallen on you. Here is the greatest Adam. Here is the Adam, second Adam. Jesus, his obedience, if you put your faith in him, just like the sin is imputed to you, his obedience gives you life, not just life, eternal life. You may cry, cry out saying that it's not fair that I die in Adam, but it's also not fair that Christ should die in your place and my place and because of him I live. It's not at all fair. But God says it is fair. It is fair. So there is a glorious promise in right there in Genesis chapter 3 we see in the scriptures. In fact, some scholars say it's a, pro, a proto-evangelism. That means it's the first gospel ever proclaimed for humanity to see right there when humanity fell. How God is going to get back his love. Back. Jesus died in your place and my place to win back us his lover. Do you know this God this morning? 
do you know him if not i encourage you to come in a relationship let me uh, those those uh, who uh, who wonder why is jesus has to die in my place let me tell you one illustration and then i'll close it's a it's not an illustration but it's a, it's a true story in 2000 uh, okay hold on about the uh, 2010 in chile in chile one mining incident happened how many of you heard that a mining accident happened okay nobody nobody reads newspapers okay there's a mining incident happened basically what happened is they this is a copper and gold mine and the 33 of miners went under the earth and they were trapped because their shaft collapsed they were stuck under under underground so to say half 700 meters more than they were stuck there there were 33 of them 33 there is no way for them to come back there is no way they stuck there like that for 69 days and eventually along with the help of nasa and the, the government of chile they, they designed a capsule they dug a hole into the earth where till where they were there and then the capsule was sent and one by one they pulled them out it took more than 24 hours to rescue those tigers when i look at that that is a for me that's a beautiful picture of gospel and why christ has to die in my place is there any way this for 33 people to dug a, dig a hole right above them and come victorious onto the surface half a kilometer can they do that with limited resources with limited energy with limited food can they dig up a hole right above them half a kilometer the religion might say you know what do good works you'll come up it's easy we have that power to come up the atheist might say okay you are the weakest of creation you deserve that you die there but god says no 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 i will not let you in that in that fallen state ever i will make a hole into that i will send a capsule and he will bring you up that capsule is a beautiful picture of jesus christ how he rescues each one of us from the fallen state and he wins us as his lover you think you and i can ever come up the bible says no no way the doors are shut nobody knows how to come there i am providing only one way my son the way he will take he will bring me back if you think there is any other way god says it's a bad news there is no other way jesus rescues you and me as his lover he brings back that state back again he makes us perfect and holy Again, uh, when uh, uh, when we look at these four things that are broken because of sin, not only God gives salvation in the name of Jesus, but also He starts restoring one by one. He starts restoring the relationship you and I have with God in the first state. Now we do not come to God's presence out of fear, because out of reverence, what He had done for me, out of love and grace, and and I come and celebrate. There is no fear in this love. So He restores that relationship. He not only restores that relationship, but he also restores the relationship between you and me. When I look at someone, I understand they are sinner. They are under the power of this fallen, they are this false lover. So I always act with them with compassion. You don't know Christ yet. I understand why you are like that because you are fallen being. But you know what? 
I came to know someone who loved me, even who showed such kind of love towards you, not judge you because you want to throw you away, but with the, his love, I love you. That's how he's going to heal community. That's how he expects you and I to love each other. With Christ's love. So he heals relationships, horizontal relationships. Not only that, he also heals the pain and suffering. When I look at my Lord and Savior, the pain and suffering he had gone through, joyfully, willfully, that makes me joyful in a sense. Lord, you are giving me this privilege to be like you, to go these pains and suffering because you are going to glorify me not despite of sorrow and pain but through pain and sorrow. You will glorify me and you will glorify yourself. My perspective towards pain and suffering changes. I do not question God but I embrace them with joy. And lastly, he also restores death. One day, the Bible says, you and I will die. But there is a day which is going to come. God says, the archangel will scream, shout in the heavenly realms, even though you are dead, I will raise you up and I will take you where I am and you will live with me for eternity. From my hands, nobody can snatch you away. That is the promise of this lover. If you know this, then how are we responding to him this morning? How are we responding to this lover? Are we still going after small, small uh, apples dangling here and there and being tempted with them? Or are we fixing our eyes on him and preparing ourselves with holiness, with purity, with godliness, with compassion, love, and preparing and like a, like a, like a young lady getting married? Are we like that this morning? If you know this love, that's what God expects from you and me. If you don't know, know him personally, how can you throw away such kind of love? We all look for love, to be loved, to love someone. Here is an answer for you. Only Jesus can fulfill that craving of love you and I have in our hearts. If you find him, you will find everything. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for everything you taught us, Lord. Lord, if any of the brothers here are sitting do not know you yet, Lord Father. We pray that you would reveal yourself to them, Lord Father. May they come to know your love. May they come to know your saving grace. May they come to know your son, Jesus Christ, who is the personification of love. So, Lord, we pray that you would come after them in a loving way, Lord Father, to reveal and to persuade them, to win them, to be with you. And those of us, Lord Father, who know you, forgive us, Lord Father, to going after False lovers, Lord Father, on a daily basis. Help us, Lord Father, to renew our commitment and our love towards you, Lord Father. Help us, Lord Father, to love you the way you loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.